0: Good morning. Good morning, happy new year to all of you, and to those of you joining us online, may God bless you at home. Um, this is the first time in a long time when I was putting this message together that I did two or three, and I kept writing one, I didn't like it, and I'd write one, I didn't like it, and pretty soon I thought, I, I, I forgot at one point that this would be like a mixed service with a lot of little kids, and a couple of the messages you wouldn't want me to give with your kids' presents. I could imagine the questions you would have gotten at, at, at home. And so um, I landed on this topic matter of Meet the Real Jesus this morning. I'll get into that in a few moments. Back in the 70s, 1970s that is, there was a TV show to tell the truth. I don't watch it much. I just watched it enough to know what it was about. Um, and on this show, they'd have three contestants. One was the real deal, the other two were imposters. And then they had a panel of four TV stars who were supposed to ask telling questions to figure out who the real person was and who the imposters were. And it was always interesting to to watch this play out because the, the one who was the real deal, the one who was really the person, had to tell the truth about himself or herself. But the other two could make up any story they want. And they made up really plausible stories. The ones that were the imposters, they sounded really good. And and when you're watching, you you usually had no idea who the real person was. And then the end end of the show would be the great reveal. And they'd say, meet the real so-and-so. I'm sure you're glad you came to church to hear this. As we begin the new year, we need to meet the real Jesus. Because there's a lot of imposters out there. A lot of ones that look like it, it, it's the right thing, but it's not the right thing. And so I want to begin by looking at some imposters of of, of Christ and how that works. All right, let's let's begin here. And I'm going to just use one word titles here. I'm trying to keep the message relatively simple. Um, And so I'll fill in the blanks kind of as we go along. But first of all, there's this casual approach to Christianity that that Jesus is seen as a means to make life easier. And that, my friend, is an imposter to Jesus Christ and who he really is. In this kind of approach to Christianity, there's this self-centered faith, this genie-in-the-bottle kind of faith. Jesus is at my beck and call. I'm in control, and I call upon him when I need him. Maybe my marriage needs some tuning. Maybe my child-rearing needs some tuning, and I call on Jesus for that. It's kind of a self-improvement, kind of this kind of motivational kind of look at Christ. And Christ is diminished. He's not seen as Savior and Lord. But rather as a tool and an instrument to make my life easier. Then there's the curious. These are folks who see Jesus as an interesting teacher. Again, he's diminished from what he really is. He's understood as a significant figure in history, but his core teachings, like, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, are dismissed. It's kind of like, I like this about him. I don't like this. I'll just dismiss what I don't like. I'll just take what I like. And Jesus is seen as some kind of good moral teacher and, and the dispenser of some, some, you know, wisdom. But basically the faith is, is determined by what I like and I don't like. That, my friend, is an imposter. That's not the real Jesus. And that's not how he really works in the life of a person. And then the last one is the ones who are callous. Callous. Jesus is seen as a threat uh, to their way of life, and, and so he, he's rejected. Um, man, King Herod falls into this camp. In Matthew chapter 2, he saw Jesus as a threat to his life, and so King Herod ordered all the babies two years and younger that were born in the vicinity of Bethlehem because he wanted to rid himself of the competition of Jesus Christ. He ordered all those babies to be killed because he saw Jesus as a threat to his way of life. And he was more concerned about position and power than about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? Bethlehem was the first community to experience the division of Jesus Christ firsthand. They they experienced the length that those will go to who are opposed to Jesus Christ to try to get him out of their lives. And so this creates, of course, a a wrong uh, look at who Jesus is. So we need to meet the real Jesus this morning. You with me? And we're going to do that by looking at John chapter 1. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Um, By the way, if your kids are with you today, this stuff I'm sharing with you, you need to talk to them about this. You parents do. This is your job. You need to tell them who the real Jesus Christ is and how he really works. And what I'm going to share with you today, you need to reinforce when you go home. And you need to make sure that they're established in their most holy faith and they understand who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. Because a lot of people out there are falling into the categories I listed today. Hey, he's a good moral teacher. Ah, I like this and I don't like this. I'm going to read this part of the Bible. I'm just going to throw this part of the Bible. That happens all the time. We can't be doing that when we follow Christ. There's got to be an all, all sold out kind of following of Christ. So listen to, to John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the Gospel of John is the only one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begins with a discussion of the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, rather than beginning with when he was born and and where he was born and all the circumstances surrounding his birth. It's the only gospel that zooms in on the eternal aspect of Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke are called synoptic gospels. And what that simply means is they tell the same story from different vantage points. You know, John is his own entity. It's the story of Christ, but more theologically bent. It's more telling the reasons behind Christ and what was going on from a spiritual standpoint. And so uh, let's, let's meet the real Jesus using John chapter 1. So we're going to look at some characteristics of Christ. First we see Jesus as eternal. There are a couple of wrong views of Christ. we just got to just obliterate to this morning. Listen, Jesus is not created. Amen? He's always been. He's always been. He's eternal. He's always been part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No beginning, no end. In the beginning, is a reference to the beginning of our world, okay? Jesus has always been part of the Godhead, uh, part of the Trinity of the Father. Uh, so he, you always, uh, you've got to understand this eternal uh, aspect of Christ. And then he's called the word here in John. He's called the word. It comes from the Greek word logos, meaning Jesus is the source and creative power behind all things. Jesus is part of the Godhead. He is one and always been one with God. Now, John does a little bit of word playing here. So he uses the word logos to describe Jesus Christ. Now, to the Greek, logos meant the power behind everything. To the ancient Hebrew, logos meant God. So John knows what he's doing. He's inspired by the person of the Holy Spirit as he's penning these words. So he uses this word, word, for Jesus, meaning God is the power behind all things, understanding that when Greeks and Hebrews would read it, they would kind of get what was going on. Now, let's back up a minute and just talk, all right? I'm being a little intense, so I'm going to take a breath. You can't explain the Trinity your kids ask you how the Trinity works, and you, if you think you know how, you come tell me, okay? Because it's a revealed truth to us. See, we're called to believe revealed truth. If you're taking notes, that's a sub-point. But we really don't understand the Trinity. We don't understand how there'll be three persons and one God. We don't know that. Some things are beyond our human, you know, our human, you know, ability to, to, to understand. How, how can Jesus be both God and, and human? We don't understand these things, Right? But we're called to believe them because they're revealed to us. In the company of literary gentleman Daniel Webster, who most of us know as the author of the Webster Dictionary, was asked if he could comprehend Jesus Christ and how he could be both God and man. Here's what he said. No, sir. He replied and added, I should be ashamed to acknowledge him as my Savior if I could comprehend him. He'd be no greater than myself. Such is my sense of sin and consciousness of my inability to save myself that I feel I need a superhuman Savior, one so great and glorious I cannot comprehend him. That's our Jesus. He's eternal, and he really is beyond human understanding. Amen? He's been revealed to us. John further clarifies for us what the real Jesus looks like. We already looked at this a little bit, but I'm going to zoom in on this a bit. Jesus is creator. He created all things. <clears throat> Excuse me. This carries a deep implication. The Creator knows His creation. The Creator has the right to tell His creation how to function. He knows the operating instructions for us better than we know ourselves. For years, I designed equipment at 3M. I love design. And every time I did, I would think of God as a designer, how He knows the stuff that He designs. So I grew up, I loved to tinker. When I was 10 years old, I built a little wood go-kart. Anybody ever done, done that? Yeah. Only back in my day, I used a washing machine's motor to drive it. It was a gas motor. My grandma had this washing machine with the ringers on the top, and you'd kick the starter, and the motor would start up. It was a gas motor, and the thing would run. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Well, I thought that would make a perfect go-kart motor, amen? So we mounted that puppy on the back of a go-kart. And you, I'd step that thing on, get it going, jump on the front. And the first time I drove it, I realized something. I had no brakes. And I had no control of the motor. It just basically went at the speed it went at. I was 10. I was just happy to get the thing. I thought, it's working. Oh, no. And you know how I got off it? It's called crashing. That's how I got off the first time. And I, I tried many different brakes, and none of them ever worked very well. And then when I got to be 12, I thought, I want a mini bike. They're too expensive. I'll build one myself. So I sawed the thing out of pipe frame, and I got a neighbor, Mr. Comer, really nice man. He welded it all up for me put a little five horsepower motor on there with a little clutch and chain drive the back wheel. I drove that thing hundreds of miles. So I was destined to go into design engineering because I love to design things. So when I went to school, I went to school to be a mechanical engineer and design. And I designed a 3M. And here's where I'm going with all this, okay? When the operator would have a, a problem with some machine I designed and they would talk to me about it, guess what? I knew that machine inside and out. Right? And I knew what would be the problem, what wouldn't be the problem. If an operator came to me and said, it's doing something like in this, I'd say that's impossible. It can't do that. Don't tell me what you think the solution is. Tell me what you think the problem is. And then I could probably figure out what the solution should be, right? Anybody that works with stuff like that, you know, that when someone tells you what you need to do to fix it, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Well, here's where we get real absurd. If someone came to me and started arguing with me about how that machine worked, that would be absurd, right? If you're the designer of it, you know how it works. Guess what? God is our designer. He's our creator. Why do you think John talks about this right away? He's establishing something here in First John. God is our creator. He knows how we've been made. He knows how we should operate. That's why we study the Bible so much here at church. That's why we talk about it all the time. Because it's God's operation manual for how we do life best. Right? God is creator. We are not. If you're going to meet the real Jesus, you've got to acknowledge him as your creator. Your body is marvelously made. You are not an accident. There are all these interrelated systems. If one thing fails, everything fails. There, you know, There's no way, I'm going to say it, no way evolution could have produced this. Darwinism is dead. It's been dead for 50 years because it doesn't work. I still hear people talk about it going, no, it's not even true. Throw the books away. It's no good. I'm getting a little bit passionate here. So many people are being deceived into believing a lie and they walk away from the faith because they believe a lie. Jesus is our creator. In the beginning, he created. He knows us and he knows how we operate. I've said it strong enough, right? Another characteristic of the real Jesus is Jesus' life. I love how John continues on in chapter 10 of, of his gospel and he tells us this Jesus said, I'm the gate. All must enter through me to have eternal life with God. In fact, he says, all others who have come before me are thieves and robbers. They're imposters. And then he says this specifically in John chapter 10, verse 10. I've come that they may have life and have life to the full. The question becomes, what's life to the full, right? Jesus has come to give us life, give us life to the full. And frequently we jump right into a secular definition of what life to the full looks like. In fact, I was reading about that. I went to the internet. I did what I like to do. I just throw the word on there and see what the answer is I get. And here's what one guy said life to the full means. I live life to the fullest. I jump out of planes. I ride motorcycles. Race jet skis. Have driven more than one golf cart straight into a brick wall. Just the way I live my life. During lightning storms, I renaissance joust in full-body chainmail." Most people didn't get that first hour. In other words, you're out there in the middle of a lightning storm, okay? During shark week, I swim dressed like a seal. I'm a risk taker, a thrill seeker, a death wisher, and a bread maker. Which isn't impressive until you see the aggressively mutated strains of yeast that I use. When I bake, it's dough or die. All right. You didn't like that, did you? That was terrible. I just did some bread-making myself, so I was into this a little bit. See, without Jesus Christ at the center of your life, what you think is full life is doing all these thrilling things. I have a full life by riding my motorcycle. No, I love to ride motorcycles. I'll admit it, I have a couple motorcycles. I ride them. Is that life to the full? No, that's riding a motorcycle, man. All these things don't make a full life. See, what we're being told here is when you have Jesus Christ... Then you experience life like it's meant to be experienced and you can enjoy life to the full. But without Jesus, you'll seek all these substitutes to make your life full. And running a go-kart into a brick wall does not make your life full. It's just reckless driving of a golf, of a, of a, a golf cart, you know? Um, I mean, and so what, what you've got to understand is Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He means this. In me, you're going to have an abundance of understanding of what really matters in life, and you're going to be able just to just enjoy life. And I, I tell you what, the older I get, the more I just enjoy life. I just enjoy talking with people. I just enjoy doing things a lot more. It's just the way life is. Next, we're told this when we meet the real Jesus. Jesus is light. He's the way uh, to God. He illuminates the way to God. And in him, we see life very differently. We have an aha. We understand life differently. We conceptualize that life differently because Christ is living in us and he's illuminating what life is really all about. Listen, those who don't know Christ live in darkness, we're told here. They don't understand. They won't understand us, ones who follow Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm gonna say this. It doesn't surprise me when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. Why would that surprise us? We want to make morality by legislating it on these four folks. They're, they're going to be who they are. They're in darkness, right? We who are in light are going to see things differently because Christ illuminates our minds. Shows us things as they really are. But unbelievers, they're going to act like unbelievers. That shouldn't surprise us. You know what disheartens me is when we believers act like unbelievers. When we gossip and slander and get mad and get angry and do all that kind of silliness that we should never do as believers of God, Amen. We should be Christ-like. I'm trying not to smile. All right, here we go. So in summary, when we meet the real Jesus, we see he's eternal, he's creator, he's the life giver, and he's the light. So the question becomes, and it's a natural question, why would I believe these things about Christ? Why believe these things at all that are told, told us in the Bible? And that's where John takes us next in the Gospel of John. It's really interesting. He introduces us to the real Jesus, and then he says right away, here's why you should believe in him. All right? And so we're going to go where the scripture goes here this morning. We're going to go to the confirmation of Christ. And so head back to John 1 with me. I'm going to read verses uh, 6 through 13. It'll show up here, I believe, in the screen behind me. Um, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not John, the writer of the Gospel John. This is John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who uh, did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. So in the Bible, what's fascinating to me, in the Bible there are different levels of witness to the validity of Jesus Christ to his claims to be the Son of God and to be our Savior and and our Lord. There are different levels of witness in the Bible. Um, And right here in in the Gospel of John, we get to what I call level one. It's people. People witnessed Christ. All right? So the first, first level of witness of Christ is people that time saw the Christ. Now, And they talked about it. I mean, that's the Bible, right? That's the New Testament about all these folks that saw Jesus and and validate his claims as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord. Lest you discount this, we put a lot of merit into what others say at times. I remember years ago, I went on vacation, and I was at the Alamo car rental place. This was before the time of Google Maps, all right? So I didn't know where I was going. And uh, back then, you either got a paper thing called a map that you folded out and looked at in your car while you're trying to drive, or you asked somebody knowledgeable where to go when you weren't trying to get to someplace. So I talked to the lady behind the counter, and I said, do you know this place? And she said, oh, yeah, I know that. You go, here, here, here. You turn by this. This is a a landmark you see. This is the road to take. And she gave me a really good description of how to get to where we are going. I didn't say, well, I don't know if I trust you. I asked after all, right? Why did I trust her? Because she had been there, lived there, and seen it. Why do we trust what the, what the witnesses say in the New Testament? Been there, lived there, seen it. They give testimony to it. John, the forerunner of Christ, testifies to the validity of Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals another level of witness to Christ and why we should believe that he's the real deal. It's, it's this, creation. This is one of my favorite Subject matters. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that God has made it plain in, in creation of his existence, so much so that people are without excuse. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation speaks of God. Do you see this beautiful landscape that we were seeing during some of the songs that we sang this morning that Jordan put up there for us? I go to places like that and I hike. And every time I see him on the, on the screen here, I think, God, you're majestic. Amen? Your creation is beautiful beyond comprehension. Vicky and I have been trying to see northern lights and shooting stars lately. Have you followed any of you follow that? And so she gets me to go to places um, late at night. Uh, I think she just thinks I'm hot and she wants to be alone with me late at night. <laughs> but then my feelings are soon dashed. We're going to look at shooting stars. So we're we're driving all over Brookings trying to find shooting stars. One night when the shooting stars are coming like crazy. And finally I said, I know a place that's really dark where the graveyard. So we drove to the graveyard and laid on our backs by some tombstones and looked for shooting stars. You know, it was really romantic. But, you know, we did see shooting stars. It was great. There were shooting stars. We didn't look for the northern lights, never did see those, but it was fun to drive around and try to find them. But every time I look at something like that, I think, God, you're so creative. All of creation speaks of you. Your glory is seen in the heavens above and the earth below. You know, great, great are you, Lord. And, you know, all creation speaks of a designer. It just speaks design to me. Uh, we're, we're, you know, Psalm 139 says, We're marvelously made. Everything about you was done on purpose. In the human body, there's so many interrelated systems that if one stops and doesn't work, you die. And, and you know, they, they can't even figure out how the eye came to be. They don't really even know how the brain works yet, you know. Um, we're, we're marvelously made. Great is thy faithfulness, God. Amen, right? Creation speaks of God. You're created of God. God is our designer. We ought to listen to our designer. If we want to meet the real Jesus, we're going to acknowledge him as creator. Then we get to miracles. This is what our Christmas series was all about. We majored on how the miracles uh, were so prevalent in in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to simply conclude this point quickly because we just spent a few weeks talking on this. Um, But I'm going to go to the end of John the Gospel of John, and read what he wrote basically, or summarize it for us. It says, Jesus did so many things well that if any one of them, were, if, if every one of them were written down, the whole world would not have room for the books written. So what John does at the end of his Gospel, he says, he did so many things, so many wonderful things, so many miracles, so much, so that if we begin to write them all down, the whole world couldn't contain them all. Miracles speak of Jesus. And why we should believe in Him as the Bible presents Him to us, and then there's one last witness to Christ: God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In John 5:36, Jesus said, "The Father who sent me has Himself testified concerning me." Jesus then says in John 15:26, "When the Counselor comes." whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes from the Father, he will testify about me. So Jesus says, the Father testifies about me, the Holy Spirit testifies about me. Here recently at Grace Point, we've had people just pop into church and they'll fill out the reason why and they've said, I just felt drawn to this place. You know what that is? The person of the Holy Spirit. You ever been sitting in a church service and just feel something happening in you? We don't understand frequently. That's a person of the Holy Spirit working in us testifying to the validity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jim Cimbala, a long time ago, wrote a a book called Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. And I love that book. It's just a short little book. It reads in about an hour and a half. And he said this, it's fine to explain about God, but far too many people today are 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 not experiencing the living Christ in their lives. We're not seeing God's visitation in the gatherings. We are not on the lookout for his outstretched hand. The teaching of sound doctrine is a prelude, if you will, to the supernatural. It is also a guide, a set of boundaries to keep emotion exuberant within proper bounds. But as Paul said, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If the Holy Spirit is not given an opening among us, if his work is not welcome, if we are afraid of what he might do, we leave ourselves nothing but death. What do you think of that? See, we can study scripture and we can have an academic experience and we can know a lot of things, but at some point we got to re- really, really believe it and really receive it and begin to act on it. Well, let's get to what I would call the capstone uh, of my uh, uh, discussion with you this morning on Meet the Real Jesus. Um, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made a dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when it comes to meeting the real Jesus, the capstone is the incarnation. We have the capstone of the incarnation. The Word became flesh. God came among us and dwelt among us. Uh, When it says he came and dwelt among us, uh, made his dwelling among us, that means he pitched his tent among us. He made his tabernacle in our midst. He dwelt with us. He became one of us. This distinguishes Christianity um, from basically all of the faiths. Our God came to us to save us. We don't have to do a bunch of things to earn merit to be okay. He came to us and he died for us to make us okay. That differentiates us from most other faiths. And the incarnation, friends, of Christ is the litmus test for the real Jesus. If that's denied, who's ever denying it and whatever they're telling you, you need to just chuck out. It's false. It's heretical. It's not orthodox. The incarnate Christ has made God known. If we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus. He shows us God in person. When we see Christ, we see God. The Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Jesus makes God known to us. So I had this message done, and I was hopelessly stuck right here. And I remember saying to Vicki, I don't know how to finish this thing. And so we discussed it and talked back and forth. And so we've talked about imposters to Jesus so far. We talked about meet the real Jesus. And we talked about why we would believe in the real Jesus presented by the Bible, right? So what should we do now? We need to have a holy response to the real Jesus. We need to have a holy response to the real Jesus. And Vicky and I talked on this. By the way, if you don't know who Vicki is, she's my wife. Not some... Other girl. Anyway, um, and we talked back and forth on, on how, do, how, do, how, do we, how do we respond? How do we have a right response to this real Jesus? So I'm going to coach you up on now how to respond. You okay with that? This is going to stretch some of you. It definitely did the first hour. Um, English that we have, you know, we speak English. It's a, such a sloppy language, English is. You know, um, Hebrew and Greek are much more, much more precise, and some of what we see in the Bible, we lose in the translation when it goes into English because we don't get the nuances behind it. And so what I want to do is, is dive a little deep with you in terms of how do you respond to a, a holy God? So I'm going to begin with a couple forms of physical response, a posture-related response. All right? Lifting of hands during prayer and worship is mentioned all over in the Bible as a response to a holy God. It was a common posture of prayer and praise. It's a gesture of surrender. When you lift your hands, you're saying, I surrender to you, God. It appears all over in the Old Testament. In fact, in Psalm 134, verse 2, this is an example. It says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Lest you think this is only in the Old Testament, it's also talked about in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 2 8, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So, point one in our response to meeting the real Jesus is this lifting hands during prayer and worship is symbolic of surrender and praise to Jesus Christ. So, if you're thinking of how, how do I describe lifting hands to my kids? Here's how I would do it. I would say, honey, if someone was to hold you up with a gun, what would you do with your hands? Don't shoot me. I lift up. I what? I surrender. You're in charge, right? If you're getting stuck up with a gun, you lift your hands up. Why? Because you're surrendering. When we sit and worship to the the risen Jesus Christ, if you meet the real Jesus Christ and you lift your hands to what you're saying is, I surrender to you. I surrender to your your sovereignty and to your lordship. You are Lord, I am not. I surrender. That's what lifting of hands means. Okay, do you understand that? It's not some crazy charismatic going wild. Although it is sometimes. It simply means I surrender, God, and I worship you and I adore you. It's a physical posture. I went to the Vikings game here a while back when Dodds was still on his roll. And it was a great game. You know what happened to me? I went crazy. Yes! Yes! I'm yelling. I'm in the very top row. So I'm looking at little ants running around down there in the field. But it was phenomenal to watch that game. And we won. That, and when you win as a Viking fan, you rejoice. Because you lose a lot of games by three points. Right? Some of you, act, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a Packer fan, just tune out. I don't really care about you. But I'm going, yes! Yes! And then the next game they lost, you know, of course. But anyway, you know, lifting hands means adoration, surrender, and worship, okay? A second posture is that of kneeling. Kneeling during prayer and worship is symbolic of submission and praise to Jesus, acknowledging his greatness. You know, Psalm 95 says, oh boy, it thinks I've I've, I've got to take the watch off again. Excuse me. It thinks that I have fallen. This happened to me last week, last time. Does anybody have one of these watches? It thinks I fall like five times a day. And I I mean, I do a lot of stuff, jerkiness. Anyway, Psalm 95 says, "'Come, let us bow down and worship. "'Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, "'for he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture.'" Okay, the flock under his care. And sometimes what we need to do is we just need to kneel before God in submission, When someone goes into the presence of a king, especially in in, in olden days, they would what? They'd come before the king and they would what? Kneel. It's an act of submission. You're sovereign, I'm not. So when you look at these postures in prayer, surrender, submission, key words for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the way we respond when we meet the real Jesus. So now let's talk about something that we do a lot. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing praises to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11 and 12 are just these wonderful prophetic uh, chapters on on Jesus Christ. And it it starts, Isaiah starts in chapter 11 saying, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Some of us know that, right? A, a, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. We used to do these readings to our kids called Jesse Tree. And you'd hang up the ornaments on the tree as you marched towards Christmas, and each one would be pulling out some scripture like this. Now, you, I, I always remember on one particular day, you would read about this, the, the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, and you talk about how Jesus would be from the lineage of, of King David. And, and, and this is all found in Isaiah chapter 11 and, and, and 12. Um, and then when you get to, to, to Isaiah 12, 5, it's like Isaiah cannot contain himself anymore after he's given all this mess, messianic, prophetic uh, stuff that's going to happen in the future. He says, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let it be made known on all the earth, sing praises to the Lord. See, when we sing, we're supposed to be so overwhelmed with who Jesus Christ is, when we meet the real deal, that our hearts just sing a song. We can't help it. Some days I'm just so happy, I'm hilarious. How about you? Because I know Jesus. Other days, when I forget who Jesus Christ is, I go around down in the dumps, because I think life's all about me. But when Christ really touches my heart, friends, there's a song there. There's a song there. That's what we're being told here. And why we sing praises at churches, because we're so enamored and so gloriously in love with Jesus Christ, that there's just a song that we want to sing to him. And then, ultimately, here's the goal we're to get to in regards to holy response to the real Jesus. Become a hallelujah, praise the Lord, unencumbered worshiper. That's what we're supposed to become. Now, hallelujah is a fun word. It's a transliteration. Some of you are going, what? What's a transliteration? That's where you take a word from one language and you just plump it verbatim into another language. So hallelujah is a Hebrew word that we just speak in English, not knowing what it really means. We say hallelujah. So let's talk about what does it mean when we say hallelujah, because it is a cool word. Hallelujah comes from two Hebrew words, hale, and it means to boast and brag on, To make a show, even to the point of looking ridiculous. It means we brag so much on Jesus Christ, we look ridiculous. And then Yah means the name of God. It's a short form for the name of God. So hallelujah means praise the Lord. And you see that all over the place in in your Bibles, especially like New International Versions. I'll just translate the word hallelujah into praise the Lord. So it means you boast so much in God that you look ridiculous uh, to others. And so what we're going to do today is practice some of what I just shared with you. Ah, oh, shucks. First hour, do we need, they're all standing like this. Like, I won't look at you, I won't make eye contact, i put my hands in my pocket and bow my head. Well, you're close, you're bowing your head. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Psalm 150 out loud together. And Psalm 150 is a powerful psalm. But you've got to remember, it's the last psalm of all the psalms. And it brings to a logical conclusion all the previous psalms. It says we need to get to this point where we're so overwhelmed with who God is and what he's done for us that we just burst forth in praise. And it begins with the word hallelujah and it ends with the word hallelujah in the Hebrew. Now that's translated in our English to praise the Lord and praise the Lord. But we're gonna incorporate hallelujah back in there. So go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna read Psalm 150 out loud uh, together. So here's... My challenge to you, you could lift your hands. I'm not going to make you. You can go a little bit like this or, you know, I was at a church on, on New Year's, uh, Christmas Eve, excuse me. I watched our service here, uh, you know, uh, that day too, but I went to a church service and, you know, there's some people, yeah, kinda. It looks like, come on, give me some. No, kind of get them up a little bit. You know what I mean? You can lift your hands and praise God. That's okay. It's, it's good to do. It's an act of surrender. And you know, if some of you who are bold, you might want to kneel. But these postures are, 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 are indicative of worship of the real Jesus. And, uh, and you should sing out loudly when we sing the next song with Pastor Kyle and gang. Okay? So I'm coaching you up just a little bit. Amen? Yeah. Are you okay? Because yeah. some of you are. I see, I see the body language. I know what that means. You could talk to me, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so, you know, Aaron was telling me, you seem real free. I said, why not? <laughs> I can't encourage you enough just to love Jesus Christ. Amen? And to, to worship on him and to become a little bit unencumbered in your praise of him. So, we're going to read this out loud together. Um, and and this, yeah. Say it loudly with me. Here we go. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, I'm going to count the three, and you're going to say hallelujah loud. And then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Kyle. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.